appreciate that team. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I pray now that you'd bless us as we open your word. We seek to continue to grow in you. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've already done through your servants today and the work you're already doing in our heart. Lord, just prepare us to receive a word from you, Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all, we're finishing up our series, More Than a Feeling, today. We've been talking about those feelings, those emotions that we all wrestle with and that we as Christians wrestle with and how we sort that out, how we sort out those feelings and what we do with them as believers. Today we're talking about joy. We're going to dig into that and talk about what I believe God wants us to do and where he wants us to receive joy and, and what he wants that ultimately to look like. You guys remember back at the beginning of the pandemic, I know you probably tried to wipe a lot of this out of your mind, understandably, but you remember back at the beginning, we were supposed to be eliminating everything in our lives that didn't spark joy. Remember that? Marie Kondo, Netflix, I mean, it was like the first thing you were doing when the pandemic hit, like, let me find something on Netflix, and everybody was watching this lady tell us, go through your house, throw everything away, all right? And so a lot of us got on the cleaning kick and trying to sort things out, and you were supposed to go through, and everything that, you know, that, that pair of jeans that didn't spark joy anymore, you're supposed to get rid of it, you know? Uh, most of my jeans don't spark joy, right? That's just the way it is. But you go through, and you get rid of all these things that aren't sparking joy, and, and it's funny, like, you think about, is that really what we're supposed to do? Is that really how we're going to live in our lives and our homes? My wife and I are different in, like, even the way that we would have our house set up. She's very warm and fuzzy, so she likes it to just be sweet and wonderful and inviting and cozy. Cozy's her favorite word, I think. And so in our home, she has it a wonderful, it's wonderful, it's cozy. There's lots of little things that make it cozy, whatever exactly that is, but it's supposed to do that. And, you know, there's, everything's a comfortable place to sit, and there's blankets, and there's pillows, way too many pillows, but... You know, there's all these things that are there, and they're meant to just bring this coziness. So there's a lot, there's just a lot of stuff. For me, I'd Marie Kondo the heck out of that place, man. I'd throw all kinds of stuff away. I'd just be very minimalist and have, like, here's a chair. You know, it's one of those folding chairs that you take camping. That's fine. You're good enough. You have a place to sit. Not a big deal. I would just be that way. It's like less to clean, less to fool with, but we're very different in that way. But, but we're all kind of wired differently in those kinds of things. But back to this idea of joy, because this is where I want us to hone in. How are we really supposed to experience the feeling of joy in our lives? Like, how does that come about? Where do we find that? Is that, is that supposed to happen by trashing everything that doesn't spark joy? Well, that's not what I see God teaching us about joy. That's not how I see him approaching what is to bring joy and what brings him joy. See, God teaches us to be joyful about what he is joyful about. And you know what God is joyful about? I can tell you just straight up. God is joyful about lost sinners repenting and coming back to him. You want to make God happy? Turn from your sin and follow Jesus. That, that's joy right there. I, I didn't make this up. Luke 15, 10. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Our God, far from wanting to get, make everything get lost and eliminate it all, far from that, God finds joy 
in lost things being found. That's what he wants. Again, not my idea. It's what the Word of God teaches us. Look in Luke 15, 11 through 32, a story that you know well, but one we need to dig into today. Luke 15, 11 through 32, the story commonly known as the story of the prodigal son. It says, uh, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me, my, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, y'all, this is just straight disrespectful. It was disrespectful back in the first century as Jesus was teaching this story. And it would be today. Like if you went to your parents, it's like, I know one day, you know, mom, dad, you're going to kick the bucket. Can I just go ahead and get my part of the inheritance? You're cool with that, right? I mean, we know how we would receive that from our own children. In a, in a very different society then, this would not have been received well. This was not cool, okay? But this is what he does, and the father grants this. It says not long, because the, the father is in this story, you're going to see, very generous. More generous than first century fathers would have been. All right, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. You talk about a turn of events. When he was safe within the confines of his father's home, in his father's company, his life was good. He was a loved and a beloved son. But outside of that, he is lost, he is hungry, he has nothing. So much so that he would eat what the pigs are eating. When he came to his senses, verse 17, this is a critical piece of this. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. This is a major change in attitude, isn't it? This is a major change from, go ahead and give me everything that I'm due, and I'm going to go out and do it my way. Right? This is an attitude that says, I don't even deserve, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And so he comes back to the Father with this mindset. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Here's the good news for you and I as believers and any in this room or online that are not. God the Father, and God the Father is clearly the Father in this story, disagrees deeply with what the Son has just said. What did the Son just say? I'm not worthy to be called your son. You know how many people don't come to Jesus because they just don't feel like they're good enough? Do you know how many people refuse to come on home because they just don't feel like they measure up? Because they don't have everything right yet. Maybe one day. Maybe one day I'll, I'll clean myself up enough to be worthy of being called a child of God. And people sit on the sidelines and even people that have already chosen to follow Jesus stay sidelined in their faith because they're too busy worrying about not being good enough. When you ought to just embrace the fact, yeah, you're not good enough. But Jesus is, and here's how the Father disagrees with the Son, and this is a message for you. 
It's a message for all of us. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. This father in the near Middle East in this time period and the way that Jesus has presented him would have been nearly ludicrous to some of those who were first hearing Jesus tell this story. Why? Well, because fathers in the near ancient Middle East did not run. You wouldn't see that. They wouldn't be caught running because it would have been beneath them. In a very highly patriarchal society, that just is not something that happened. But the way that Jesus presents the love of the Father is that his love for his Son is so strong, it's so powerful, that he doesn't sit back and wait with arms folded to wait and see how the Son might present himself to the Father, groveling at his feet like one of his hired servants. Now, <laughs> the love of the Father meets him on the road. Y'all, This is a message for us about how God loves his children. And the son, though, quickly says to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is a powerful reminder that repentance is critical. A repentant heart before the father is critical. That is the cost. It doesn't come at a cost of you earning your own salvation. Praise be to God, you can't do that. But it does come at a cost of sincere repentance. Of a heart that falls at the mercy of the Father. But the mercy of the Father is meeting you on the road. It's meeting you on the way. And it's beautiful. The Father says to his servants, here in verse 21 before that, again he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. We talked about that. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Mm. Father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. That is a father that is rejoicing that his child has come home. And let's party. Let's be excited. We don't have to dig into everything that you've done wrong. You're here with a repentant heart. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. The father loves both of his sons deeply. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad 
Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Understand, and we talked last week about how important it is to keep Scripture in context. The, script, the context of this Scripture is Jesus answering those that were accusing him of eating with sinners, associating with sinners. People that were far off, far away from God. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he interact with these people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees said? So Jesus tells three stories. Story of a lost sheep, story of a lost coin, and the story of the lost son. And in every one of them, he's teaching them that when something valuable has been lost, you do whatever it takes to find it. And when you get it back, you rejoice. Tim Keller, in his powerful book that many of you all have read or heard about now through the years because it's been out a long time, he wrote a book called Prodigal God. And when people first heard about this book or saw this book, they thought, what is this guy up to? Are they, is he calling God wayward? Because we always thought, people just kind of assumed that prodigal meant wayward, gone astray. The, the prodigal son that's taken off and done whatever he wanted. But prodigal actually just means extravagant. So very much so, God is extravagant. He is a prodigal God. He is extravagant in his love for his children. And that would have been the way that the first century hearer would have received this story from Jesus. Because it would have been really antithetical to the way that, again, fathers in, in that time period lived or interacted with their children. This love, they would have thought, this love is too much. And oh my, it is too much. How deep the Father's love is for us. And it ought to, be a, it ought to just bless us over and over. Jesus uses all these examples, sheep, coin, sons, because he knows they will interact, they will, they will land, they will uh, really touch the heart of those that hear them. They will understand exactly what he's trying to get at. Now, it doesn't mean they'll accept it. But we should find our joy in the things that God finds his joy in. We should care about lost people, lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons. All of these are examples of God teaching us how much he cares for his children. And every human being is a child of God, even the ones you don't like. Even the ones who you think God must not like. You know what? He might like them more than you. Have you wrestled with that? It's a tough one. But God receives them joyfully. God receives joy from lost people coming home. And so we ought to be not like the older son. It was like, what's up with this? I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Here I am living the perfect Christian life. 
and there's no party for me. But these people over here, why do they get one? You know, it's, it's a terrible attitude. We know that. But yet we've found ourselves having it from time to time. We should receive joyfully that which God receives joyfully. We should receive Christ joyfully into our own hearts. Look at Luke 19, 1 through 10. Continue to teaching, teaching here in the gospel. Luke 19, 1 through 10. <clears throat> Again, a story you know well, Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now this would have been, um, this would have been highly unusual, right? And, and this, would, this too would have been condemned by the teachers of the law and uh, the Pharisees because you didn't interact with you know, the tax collectors. This was, they were very much against this. This would have been highly frowned upon. And even for Zacchaeus, he would have been surprised that this famous rabbi was going to associate with him in this way and come to his house. A big deal to come under somebody's roof and break bread in ways that are even different than it is today. It was a big deal. So Zacchaeus, it says, verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. This is the accusations that are continually thrown at Jesus. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here I am, and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That is clearly the heart of a repentant sinner. Somebody that is falling on the mercy of God. Joyful to receive it, but recognizing that only he can give it. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Y'all, that's what Jesus is about. So we should be excited and do everything we can to help as many come home to him as we can. We should get excited when they do, and we should be a part of it. And we should bring our own repentant heart to him, because we need to take up that attitude of Zacchaeus. Lord, in every way that I've not been right, I want to make it right. I want to do what's right in your sight. I'm falling at your mercy, and whatever you're going to do, I'm going to trust you. Now that's very different than how we frequently live this life. We very frequently don't find joy in repentance. But it begins there. It begins at that place of humbling ourselves and saying, Lord, I believe that your way is better. So I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I'm going to find my ultimate joy in Jesus. Joy in Jesus should take us past mere feelings, like temporary fleeting joy. And we're all guilty of finding our joy in places that are fleeting. And we ask ourselves and we wonder, like, why am I not happy? What's wrong with me? What's going on with me? We're, we're trying to sort it out. We're trying to fill that longing that we have with anything. 
we keep coming up empty and keep wondering where the longing comes from. And there is no doubt that you can find temporary joy in the things of the world. You, you absolutely can. But you've got to understand that these things are temporary for a reason. They're, they're, they're not going to last. They can't last by their very nature. They're going to fill us up for a minute, and they may make us joyful. They might make us happy, and we'll grasp hold of it, and we'll think, I've had all this longing, and I finally found something that made me happy. Here it is. And we open our hands, and we wonder, how in the world is it already gone? Like it seeped out between our fingers, and we go search for something else and try to grasp hold of that. Look, I got it. And it's gone again. And, and that is the nature of worldly pleasure. It, it can't last. It's not designed to last. So when we're constantly chasing after our feelings and we're constantly thinking we're going to figure out how we can be happier by something we'll get or even something we'll do, it's not going to work like that. That's not where our joy is going to ultimately come from. Our joy should be above the temporary troubles and toils and struggles of life because it should be grounded in our relationship with Christ. Look, we are, where we are not constantly at odds with God and joyless uh, because things are going our way, I mean, lots of times we find ourselves just joyless and like, man, things are, things are not right and you know, what's going on? Again, all, those, all that wrestling that we do. And, and we can't figure out where it's coming from, but the, the solution is simple, and I've touched on it already. It's because we're putting our hope and we're looking for joy in the wrong places. Paul the Apostle was above this. He was beyond this, and he taught this in his word, in the word, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Now remember, Paul, <laughs> Paul's an interesting one. Because you talk about somebody that was not reliant on temporary things to bring him joy. Paul suffered for the gospel. He suffered for the sake of Christ. Shipwrecks and beatings, imprisonment. I'm sure, you know, there's Paul locked in, the, in a dungeon prison by the water, damp and dark and disgusting. And if you had asked him, do you have any earthly joy, he'd have probably said no. But he had heavenly joy. Because he knew Christ, and he knew that all this other stuff is temporary. And that was not the source of his joy. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I'm not saying this because I need anything. Remember, he's writing a letter, and so he's talked about some of the things that are going on, some of the sufferings that he has confronted or been confronted with. It says, For I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I have learned the secret to being content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, whether having plenty or being poor. I can endure all these things through the power of the one who gives me strength. That's the kind of attitude we should be taking up as Christ followers. My joy comes from the Lord and not my circumstances. And so when I'm pursuing Christ as the source of my joy, and it, it ought to flow over into my willingness to open up His Word and read it every day, into my willingness to pray and talk to Him, to connect to Him, to seek Him out as my source 
of daily joy and sustenance. And I should be growing as a disciple. Those things should be bringing me joy. That's a part of receiving him with joy. Yeah, doing what he wants. Doing what he's commanded me to do. John 15, 10 through 11 says, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my what? Joy may be in you and your what? Joy may be complete. His joy will be in you when you are seeking after Him. And your joy will be made complete in Him when you have Him. When you're in Him. John 17, 13 says, I am coming to you now, in Jesus' words, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. It was Jesus' joy, yes, His suffering, but His joy to come and pay the price for you, his child. And the full weight of his joy is behind his words and his acts that ultimately redeem you. So all of that to say, if we're really following Jesus, if we really have Jesus as the source of our joy, it ought to show up in our lives. People ought to be able to see it in us. And there's nothing worse than a cranky Christian. It's just true. But a Christian that is marked by joy, by an attitude that overflows with joy and love, peace, all the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the kind of Christians I want to be like. I mean, I ultimately want to be like Christ, but there's no doubt that there are Christians in my life that I look to as examples. And the ones that I look to most frequently are the ones that have seemed to grasp joy. It shows up on their face. It shows up in their actions. It shows up in the way they treat other people. And it is so frequently not tied to exactly how they may be feeling at the moment. That's what this whole series has been about. Rising above our temporary feelings, whatever they may be. And so for you and I as Christians, let's have some joy. Let's be like Christ. Jesus was not afraid to be joyful. I can guarantee you that Jesus wasn't afraid to laugh or to be with his friends, the disciples, to welcome little children. Christ. Christ countenance, his attitude, the way he conducted himself, it was something that people, that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, these very stoic people, they didn't like. They didn't like the way he interacted. They didn't like that he wasn't as pious as they were, at least as they thought they were. They thought that I guess he needed to be some kind of an aesthetic, which is a fancy word of saying, you know, very, you know, high and mighty and uh, very, you know, uh, like a monastic lifestyle. Very, very little, very, very, you know, again, like me in my house would be minimalist, you know, just whatever. This is what they expected out of Jesus, but Jesus wasn't like this. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came eating and drinking and they called him a drunkard and a glutton. Because he's 
enjoying time with his friends. He's teaching us that it's okay to have some fun. (laughs) They didn't like that Jesus was willing to go to a party or to love life, to share drink and food with friends. Y'all, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding where they were just in, he and his mom were just invited guests. The religious leaders of the day didn't live out their faith with joy. So they didn't like it when Jesus did. How crazy is that? They hadn't grasped joy. And when Jesus had, they said, what's wrong with that guy? He's a glutton and a drunk. No. He just got real joy. That's the difference. They cared more about being seen as pious than being seen as happy. And Jesus didn't need to put on any false airs because he was Jesus. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus teaches this very lesson. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. That's basically Jesus saying, fasting is great. That's awesome. If you want to deny yourself this and you want to pray, that's a good thing. That's a healthy practice. But when you do it, boy, you better have the right mindset. Because this is not about other people. And if it is, then you've messed the whole thing up from the very beginning. He says, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. (laughs) For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. God's not going to bless that. Like, they they got all the reward out of that already by people looking at them and being, Oh, wow, look how super holy those guys are. I mean, they haven't had anything to eat and they look disheveled. Wow, they must really love God. That's it. Enjoy it. Because that's all you get. Because God looks looks at that and rejects it. Rejects it. And this is the message, this is deep at the heart of the message of Christ. Embrace joy. Life is a gift. And he wants you to enjoy it, to have some joy. Not enjoy it at the cost of doing whatever you want. Make sure you hear me saying that. Jesus did not die to make you happy. He died to make you holy. Okay? I want to be sure you hear me saying that. And at the same time, he wants you to find some joy in this life, but finding it from the right source, not finding it from temporary things that are not going to last. Like so many of you, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, he wrote in his biography... It's, it's great. It's powerful. But the book is called Surprise by Joy. And big part of the book is really not so much about him, which is really interesting. Most of the time you get a biography, it's, you know, it's all about the person. But C.S. Lewis was really telling the story that ultimately was going to point to what God had done in his life. Surprise by Joy. But in this particular case, when he's talking about joy, he's not talking about the strict definition of joy that you and I might think of, which is just happy, right? When he's talking about joy, he was actually wrestling with what was a common philosophical argument, especially in the church world in that time period. 
And it was translated from the German because, and this is probably more details than you care about, but a lot of the theological arguments of the day were coming out of the, the German seminaries because they were very well known, okay? So it's this thing called Sinsucht. I'm not very good with German, but, and it's very loud in this microphone. But Sinsucht was basically the German word for longing. Longing. And the, the theological questions and arguments came around like, what causes longing in our life? Like, why do I have that feeling of not having enough or not being enough or needing more and I don't have it? Where does that come from? Sinsucht. And so the last two chapters of C.S. Lewis's biography are dedicated to how he wrestled with this. This very idea, this philosophical argument, like where does it come from? And it was his processing, the fact that he had had these, he called them stabs of joy, but you need to think of them as stabs of longing in our English language translation. Sensuked. Multiple times in his life. And this longing had awakened him to, there must be something more. He, remember, if you know this about C.S. Lewis, he was not a Christian the earliest part of his life. But he had these moments of longing. Where did it come from? And so as he wrestled with this, he discovered what their source was and what they were ultimately leading him to. This longing was leading him to joy that could only come from knowing Christ. And so initially it led him out of atheism into deism and from deism into being a Christian. He believed that at the root of Sinsucht was a father with arms wide open inviting the son back home. Meeting the child on the road, with a love and with a longing for them. And the longing that was happening in the heart of the child was lovingly placed there by the Father. My friends, that's what's there for you and me. That's how much God loves you. That rather than being the angry dad with his arms crossed, waiting to see how much you're going to grovel when you finally come to your senses, it's quite the opposite. He's meeting you on the road with love and helping you find the true source of joy is not in anything temporary but is ultimately grounded in Him. And the fulfillment of all your longing, all of your wondering why, why am I not happy? Why don't I have enough? Why is this never enough? The answer is right there on the road. And it's your loving Father. You know, We've got to stop trying to find our joy in anything other than Him. And when we do, 
it might just surprise us how happy we actually are. Will you pray with me?